Welcome to Iteration, a weekly podcast about programming, development, and design through the lens of amazing books, chapter by chapter. Hello, JP. How are you doing this week? Pretty good. I'm sitting here with this like ridiculous contraption in front of my face. You can't see it, obviously, because you're listening to a podcast. But I am using a different microphone <laughs> than, than I usually do for, for these recordings, and it just looks like this beastly thing. Well, you sound great, but you look terrible looking at this video. <laughs> Basically, I'll describe it really quickly. Like, I'm staring at a big, like, Elvis-style, beautiful recording microphone, but then it has this pop screen. So all I see is your forehead and your hair. <laughs> it's nice, but that's all I've got. Yeah, we'll see. I'll have to maybe uh, adjust into view while I'm not talking. <laughs> All right, so we are on part two of chapter seven of The Pragmatic Programmer this week, and I'm excited to be kind of rolling toward the end of this book. Not because I'm over this book, it's been an amazing book, just because it's kind of fun to be on to new subject material, although I feel like this has been so fitting for the podcast format, just like tearing through these different tips has been so good. Yeah, totally. It's super exciting. I always, there's like, comics out there about how like programmers will always jump between like side projects. I think I tweeted something out recently that was like, it was basically like a comment, maybe not recently if you're about to look it up, but it's like a, it's like a comic strip where like some guy is like, he's like, oh, I'm playing with this. And then, and then someone like pops in and is like, didn't you have like some other side project? And then it like zooms out and it has like him building like all these, there's like little half, half finished projects. And so all that's to say is that it feels good to finally like finish what you start because I feel like a lot of the times I'll like go really strong saying that I'm going to like start a project and then I get like not even halfway there and then I just uh, <laughs> just move on to something else. So it's good that we have this to keep each other accountable, like actually finishing something, which is great. Yeah, it's been really good. Having the accountability to like really read the material because we have to talk about it to lots of people. And just like being able to like tear into and dig into really good topics from an authoritative author like this has been super good. And I hope that you guys are getting as much out of it as I am in this practice. What were you working on this week, JP? Any updates? Yes. So uh, I talked to you about this a little bit over the weekend, but I think I'm actually picking up a little bit of freelance work. So that's always fun. Ooh. The barber that I go to has this system, if you will, that is that requires a little more customization than off the shelf solutions. So not only do they have like their own scheduling system, they have a very particular way in which they cut hair. It's basically like they have like an algorithm for cutting hair. If you go to like dankcuts.com, that's my little plug for them, D-A-N-C-K-U-T-S, they're located in like Orange County. But huh. my friend Zach has figured out this really reproducible way to cut hair um, based on the structure, sorry, male haircuts, based on the structure of like the male like head, I guess, like skeleton, scalp, I don't know. It's really cool. There's like a video on their on their marketing site, you should check it out. But basically... All that is to say that they have a need for software other than just like a scheduling system and a payment system because they want to track all of this data. It's very like data driven, which is really, really cool. And so not only do they want to be able to track people's like haircuts, they also want to be able to track themselves. Like how long does it take to get, uh, how long does it take for their barbers to finish haircuts? You know, like from like me sitting down in the chair to actually checking out you know, how long does that take? They're like, you know, little 
a little bit of a data nerds, which I like. I'm into it. Yeah, this is their quote. It's like too much. I love this. I think programmers will love this. Haircut engineering, the end of bad haircuts with our patented head mapping TM system. Haircut engineering and head mapping are the future of men's haircutting. This isn't just bullshit. Like it, it works. I mean, your hair always looks great. So you are a testament <laughs> to itself. Yeah, no, I, to- I totally think it's like really great. And I've been with him since like 2013. So I've been mostly like I've been able to see like the evolution of their business and it's really great because it all started out with my friend Zach who's really 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 good at cutting hair. And back in like 2013, it used to be it used to just be him and he had this like way of cutting hair that I would really 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 stand by because like I would be able to go back there and like be happy with my haircut. And because before I used to just go to like supercuts and I would tell them like how I want my haircut and then I'd be really unhappy with it because they like flip you around in the chair and then they like put a mirror in your hand so you could like see what you look like so you could like check out the back and I'd always be like, you know, very passive aggressively like, yeah, it's good. Uh, thank you. Like, <laughs> I'll just like pay now because, you know, like getting a haircut is like kind of this weird, you have this like weird relationship with the person that cuts your hair. And I guess this is more of like a business thing than it is anything like tech related or like how reproducible it is to make haircuts. But I think it just says a lot about like his business and how he is like very approachable when he's cutting your hair. So it's like if you're not like happy with something or if you like really want a specific look, like the first time you get your haircut, it's very communicative. And so it's like, how do you want your hair? Do you want it this way? Do you want it this way? If you if we like cut it short here, like these are what your options are up here because, you know, it's like sort of like that algorithm that I was talking about, like based on wow. based on how you get your hair, you're like styled on the sides. You have like such and such options up top. I don't know. Stuff like that. Man, I forgot what I was talking. About. I'm just raving about my barber. <laughs> no, it's good. So you gave a little bit of context because I'm sure we'll hear a little more of this project, whether or not you do development on it or not. It's like another example we can go to because we have run the well dry on some of our <laughs> other examples. We, we but it sounds horse. like. It sounds like they have this like super technical process of kind of documenting the haircuts and or like documenting how a particular person likes their haircut. So that's the system that you're thinking about helping them out with. Yeah, I mean, yeah, sort of sort of just like putting that into like a piece of technology. Oh, I remember what I was going to say. So like back in 2013, it just used to be him. And so he had this like process all in his head. My friend Zach. Oh, and so like it. in order to scale, this was only when he had one location. He now has two and they're hoping to, I think, open up a third location. But in order to do that, you know, you have to be able to reproduce the way that he cuts hair as like sort of like an algorithm. And so he, they bring in, I think the first couple of people they brought in as like haircut technicians were like referrals. But now the idea is that like you can bring in anyone and you could teach them the system. I imagine that what the goal is like ultimately like 10, 20 years down the line is to have like a Dane Cuts location, you know, like worldwide. Like you could go to Italy and not have to worry about like your haircut. Right, right. And maybe for him, like he could at some point, like maybe franchise this or just grow the scale the business with this set system. So it's kind of like CSS linting or JavaScript linting, but for hair in a way. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's like, (laughs) hey, you're not supposed to be doing that fix it (laughs) so it's like yeah like a set process or style guide like for the way that everybody's cutting hair that's cool that's interesting really unique project do you know like what kind of technology stack you're hoping to build this in like as a mobile project or web project what kind of stack are they looking to build yeah so um their current like the current scheduling system and like 
the way that they represent putting a user through the flow of checking them in, sitting them in the chair, starting the haircut, finishing the haircut, then checking them out. All of that lives in a web app and they all have like iPads at each of like the, the chair stations. And the idea is, I think at one point they had like a mobile app so that users can like go on it and then schedule their own haircuts and like see all of their scheduled appointments because currently that like doesn't exist. But I think at some point that got scrapped. I, I think the goal for me, the way I see it is to also just have a web app that way, because if I can't maintain it, at least like it can just live in Chrome. Like, you know, the, the fast, fast nature of React Native and mobile development and iOS and Swift, like let's say I couldn't manage some of those things like the what i would not want to happen is that like some package gets deprecated and then i have to re rewrite the whole code base which Ugh. sounds like something that happened with wiz tutor <laughs> <laughs> might be but yeah so i want to go rails and then i want to go react native for like the mobile portion of the app but i do want the web app to live as like a rails app nice super cool I'm going to tear into this chapter seven. I'm going to go ahead and review the, you want to read us through actually our tips we got for this week, JP? Sure, sure, sure. So we are going through chapter seven, part two, and this was called before the project. So we're going to go through tips 56 through 59. Nice. So we have four tips. Tip number 56, start when you're ready. 57, some things are better done than described. 58, don't be a slave to formal methods. And last but not least, 59, costly tools don't produce better designs. Sweet. Okay, so I'm going to, and here's the forbidden word, jump in to tip number 56, start when you're ready. And so, and so the, um, the quote to kick us off here is, you've been building experiences all of your life. Don't ignore nagging doubts. So the idea of starting when you're ready is all about like this intuition that you've developed as a developer. I guess it's like mother's intuition, but developer's intuition. Um, so what this tip is saying is to basically, you know, follow your instincts when it comes to starting a project. So just, just as a reminder, um, before the project is all about gathering requirements and figuring out everything you need as a, an engineer to either start a project that's like Greenfield or to tackle an issue on GitHub or to begin a sprint or whatever it is, gathering these requirements. And so Start When You're Ready is a lot about just starting because you can definitely go down like the rabbit hole of getting too many requirements, which we'll go into a little bit later in some of these subsequent tips. But it's very easy to like prototype too much so the idea is like once you finally get your proof of concept and you tackle the hard things and you discovered everything you need to discover, just say like, okay, I'm going to actually begin. Like, just start. <laughs> yeah, I think that the tip too like carries over because it's funny because at the same time of being like, wait until you're ready, there's a gut feeling for a reason, you know, take your time. In the same tip though, he's like, also just start, like you need to just jump in. But I think there's two distinctions there, like wait until you feel like you're ready to jump in, meaning you can start prototyping right away. And I think that was one of the 
takeaways that I had and I found definitely in coding is prototype, 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 like start hacking away at something, start in Rails console, you know, prototype, whatever way that looks like for you. Some people like to start with kind of interface design prototyping, whether that's on a whiteboard, like what buttons are we going to have? What form elements are we going to have? Other people like to start more from a technical perspective. So like what models are we going to start with? But regardless what that is, that's all prototyping. And I really love the quote from the book that says, quote, as the prototype progresses, you may have one of those moments of revelation when you suddenly realize that some basic premise was wrong, unquote. And I feel like those breakthrough moments are the ones that provide so much value and insight to a specific requirement or a specific feature or a product. It's super important to have that confidence that you're moving in a good overall direction. And I think there's that balance of making sure you kind of wait for that lightning strike or giving yourself the brain space to wait for that lightning strike whether it's through prototyping or sleeping on it for a moment or just not pushing too hard to jump right into coding. If you don't feel comfortable with the implementation you're going forward, if you don't really know how you're going to test it or how you're going to approach it, maybe it's better you kind of wait on that feature, work on something else and come back to it. There's just so much value in sleeping on a requirement or on an issue if you can and letting yourself come back to it with fresh eyes than just like powering into it the wrong direction. I actually had this with a new feature request from a client. Like about three weeks ago, they asked me for a new feature and they described it really cursory. It was just like a sentence of what the feature was. And my response was just, I need to wait on this because I don't know what direction this needs to be built. And I, I don't have yet a noun or a verb to really define it in my mind. And I waited on it and it took me about two weeks to find what that was. But I feel like if I would have built in the wrong direction, it would have been a lot less productive than waiting and then going through that prototype phase and now I feel super ready to jump in and my instinct to stop yelling at me like, you don't know what you're doing on this. Don't build it yet. You don't know which direction to go. Do you have a very definable moment where you're like, okay, now I'm starting? Because I think one of my biggest flaws that I need to work on is that there's definitely a gray area of like when I'm prototyping and when I'm actually like technically started. Mm. So I always open a branch called like junk or shit or brainstorm. <laughs> and then I oftentimes don't even push up to GitHub because I want to give myself the freedom to have bad ideas. And to me, a good idea comes after 10 bad ideas or three or four bad ideas. And until you just start writing and hacking away at something and playing with it, then it's really hard to let your mind go there and be okay with coming up with bad ideas until you find the right one. And I think it's important to name it shit or junk or whatever, that branch, because you really don't want that tracer code. This isn't even tracer code. This is prototype code. You don't want this prototype code in your code base. Like this isn't, you're not testing it. You're not writing a real code base. So to me, the moment I start is when I create a new branch with a very intentionally named branch name. And it's oftentimes includes that noun or verb that I've been searching for so badly. And that's when I, the moment that I start. And then I usually start lately, I'm starting with, you know, writing some tests and then moving from there. I might start with a little bit of controllers and models before writing some tests. But so the moment I, to answer your question more directly, the moment I name that branch and I commit that branch and initial commit on the new branch, that's when I start. And all that prototype code is gone and it's just lost on that junk branch. And I, and I don't pull it in. Sometimes I'll pull in one or two methods if I really came up with something good or elegant. But mm -hmm. in general, I just let it be trash. 
Nice. Yeah. So in an attempt to be better at this of like not making my prototype code, my prod code, I, for my barber, I'm like really just trying to playground things out right now. So I made a new repository that has like, it just says like Dan Cuts prototype. And so this is like my way of having something that I won't be afraid to just never use or just throw away or like if I want to use something, sure, but it will be like I will have a new repository, like a clean repository itself that doesn't say prototype in it. So. Totally. Yeah, I think that's a. I think the names are important there because it gives your brain permission to just go and just start and you don't have as many excuses because like, you know, this isn't real code and you know, you're going to nuke it. And then also to let your brain have the intention of that new branch and that clean start after kind of thrashing a bit on that other branch. I think that's super important. Totally. Cool. So moving into the next tip, tip 57, some things are better done than described, unquote. So that's the tip there. And I really liked one of the quotes from the book that was, quote, natural language is not really up to the job, unquote. So this is what this is talking about is trying to define requirements with a client, which we talked a little bit about last podcast about how that's one of the most difficult parts of my job. And I spend a vast majority of my job actually just working with clients to actually refine what the requirements are and putting that into something that can be defined and passed along to a developer so they can implement it. And so that I can do that in an elegant way that's not building the wrong thing or overbuilding or overengineering or the other direction, not underengineering and make sure that we're building really what the client wants. And that whole process of expressing what the client wants, I've tried so many different ways to communicate it back. Like, here's what I think you said and what I think you want to build. And the book is so right on point that just plain English, natural language is not up to the task of defining out a really specific prototype or really specific feature. And so for me, like even if it's just a screen recording and a sketch prototype or a couple pieces of paper that I take a picture of with my iPhone, there's always something that is visual in the specifications that I provide back. But more often than anything, I usually just record a quick screen recording in a microphone and explain what's on the screen. I try to keep it to about three or four minutes so it's quick. But unless you can describe the different things and how they're interacting with some of the software stuff, it's just too complicated to try to write some like hierarchical ordered list and try to tell this in just plain English. So my my takeaway from this is try to tell requirements back to clients where you can have nuance and inflection and have some visual examples. Even if it's just ugly examples or even if it's just hand expressions, it goes a long way to define back those requirements. That's what I found. And that's kind of my takeaway from the tip. Yeah, definitely. Totally. I think there's a lot to say about having too many requirements. This sort of goes with the whole like sometimes written stuff is like too specific versus like just seeing a a sketched out prototype and being explained to it in person but there's also like over designing a prototype too like i think one of the biggest things i took away from this tip some things are better done than described is that the process really needs to be collaborative so like you can't have design and you can't have written specs done in isolation from the person who's going to be making it happen. And I thought it was interesting how the authors had said like program specification is the process of taking a requirement and reducing it down to a point where then a programmer's skill can take over. So like when you sit, when you when I read that, 
it almost like affords this like natural isolation between like the people writing the specs, the designers, and the person who's actually programming it. So it makes it feel very like, I don't know, like first this, then this happens, then this happens. When in reality, what needs to happen is like a big collaborative effort so that you can like, you know, programmers might have different insight than like designers and vice versa. Like designers might have different insight than developers. I wrote down that there's a point of diminishing returns when specifications get too detailed. Yeah. So when you're going back and forth, refining requirements like that in that conversation, there is a diminishing returns if you get too detailed in them. And even more so, like you can end up just going over one tiny point over and over and over and not landing anywhere and end up, I use the term bike shedding, you know, you end up just like, what color does the bike shed get painted? Have you actually heard the story of where that comes from? Oh, no. So they're building a nuclear power plant. And this is like, I think it was like 1970, somewhere they're building this nuclear power plant. And there was this whole team of engineers and specifications building this nuclear power plant. And apparently it's like a famous project. I don't know where it was at, but it got delayed by like six weeks because they couldn't decide or land on what color the bike shed should be painted. So after all of these very technical requirements for this (laughs) nuclear power plant, the thing that they got hung up on in the development was the color of the bike shed. And so I think it's that illustrates the whole concept of diminishing returns, that it should be a collaborative effort and you should be detailed in your specifications. But you know, trying to have it be something done other than described and trying to keep that collaborative. And it's it's tough to do when there are different communication styles, there's different skill sets, there's different time zones involved from time to time. Like all my work's remote. And so that's hard to do sometimes. And so you're totally right though, that it is a conversation. And oftentimes it starts with an email from a client Then it's an initial video back, just like, there's what I think you're trying to tell or an email the first time. And then it goes back and forth. Like my most recent feature that we shipped for a client, there was three, yeah, there was three like sketch, looking at a sketch interface, talking through how I'm gonna build the feature three different times. And that kind of went back and forth over the course of a week or so. But each time, like I'm not really taking a lot of time in these. These are ugly, ugly prototypes, literally just like red text on a white screen just to have something to communicate and talk it through. Yeah, and and like to your point about written requirements, sometimes like at, uh, when I'm working at like open listings, we'll have GitHub issues and you see this issue and you're like, huh? And then you're just like, you ping someone who wrote the issue or like whoever's like in charge and you're just like, what does this mean? And then they like say two sentences and you're like, oh, I get it. Like, so sometimes it's just hard to express like really what you mean. Um, and that goes with the whole thing of just like, just start it and then just like get your hands dirty a little bit and, you know, don't get too caught up in the details and just go. Yeah, absolutely. It can be really hard, though, when you're working in a distributed team, you're working remote, or just you have kind of that wall between the CEO or the marketing team or whoever's driving the product and the development team. And, you know, if you don't have that shared language, you don't have that collaboration, you can be building the wrong things or receive just these super detailed specification documents that in practice mean nothing to a developer. I feel like (laughs) oftentimes from a non-technical person, you'll get something that's so nuanced and so descriptive, and yet it doesn't actually say what it needs to do. Like it says maybe how it should look Mm -hmm. or... You know, it it doesn't say like, well, who's doing what? Like, what are the inputs? What are the outputs? Like, come on, let's start there. Yeah, this reminds me of when we were in our early days of WizTutor and it was just you and Dale and I was like the one designing. And like, this is back before I had really any idea of like what's 
in the realm of possibility and what's in the realm of possibility, but like not really easy to do. And so I just remember coming up with these like very elaborate prototypes that I'd put into Envision based on specifications that Justin would give me. And then yeah, I the would CEO. come, yeah, and I would come to you guys and be like, here's the prototype. This is how it should function. And then I remember that first meeting that you and I had at Starbucks. And then you were just like, how does this button work? Because I could make it do this and this, but the way that it's like laid out in the prototypes, not quite sure that that's really possible or that like not really sure that that actually takes the user through like the funnel. Yeah, <laughs> I do remember those days because I loved what you were doing aesthetically, but you didn't yet have kind of that technical understanding of what kind of is best practice or kind of like what existing components you have. And in a lot of ways, like just reuse the same button elements, you reuse the same list views. And I feel like that's what the WizTutor app is right now. Like it's a bunch of very static list views and elements. And there's reasons to break those paradigms for sure. Like there's totally times when it's better to have a really custom and unique interface, but I feel like most times it's not. It's most. It's best to build the most understandable interface as possible. But we're kind of diverging into a different topic here now. Sure, sure. Okay, let's. Uh, we'll move on. That was some things are better done than described. Tip number fifty-eight is don't be a slave to formal methods. I like this one. This one's very. Uh, <laughs> this one like speaks to me. And this one also shows like how kind of dated this book is because, okay, so here's like, here's what the quote is. It's don't blindly adopt any technique without putting it into context of your development practices and capabilities. And so examples of formal methods that you shouldn't be a slave to, for example, are like case tools, waterfall development, the spiral model, and then, and I'm going to pull a quote straight from the book to today's UML diagrams. <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny because like UML diagrams have been out for like over a decade, couple decades yeah, now. It's like <laughs> this new hot thing yeah. in this book. <laughs> to today's UML diagram. So like if this were written today, it would be like lean startup, agile development, scrum, yeah. whatever other acronyms there are for like startup-y things. <laughs> so basically what the, like what the premise of this tip is, is like don't be caught up in methodology and then so my notes here, I, I wrote that methodology can be bad because it encourages like isolation. You have like an us versus them mentality um, yeah. between like different teams. So like us versus them in terms of like, oh, it's designers versus the programmers or it's like the PM versus the, the programmers or it's like the marketing people versus the designers versus the programmers. Whereas like, as I've said before, like everything should be like more collaborative and also, like, you can use formal methods. It's not saying, like, hey, don't use formal methods. Don't use Agile. Don't use Lean. Use it, but, like, mold it to your specific context. So, like, if you're using Agile at your work environment, you know, the things that do work, double down on those. The things that don't work, stop doing them. Like, you don't have to follow, like, Agile and Lean to the T just because, like, someone wrote a book on it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it just kind of ends up to be red tape that is unnecessary, just a restrictive process that's just too much. And you end up kind of like mired in it when you doesn't need to be. And like rules are made to be broken and there is exceptions to every rule and system. And I think, you know, this is really addressing, you know, larger teams or teams working together in these formal development methods. But I would even stretch this out to even the way that you approach programming. Like a perfect example is, 
you know, I try to make all of my objects very restful. I'm doing API development right now and having everything just be CRUD actions on restful representation of items, you know, representational state transfer. And so I had this nuance that I was going back and forth. Me and JP were both coding over the weekend on projects. And I was like, okay, what is the best way to mark a user's notifications as red? And I really was trying to push myself to make this be a restful operation. So I was like, okay, probably the best way is for the front end app to put a to send a patch request of an array of notifications and each of those notifications to be marked as red should be you know a json array of the notification with the id and then setting the flag of dismissed to true and set that array back and forth and at the end of the day like this is probably an action that makes a lot of sense to just post to an endpoint that's something like mark all is red or mark all is red endpoint and that's the way that i ended up doing this you just pass me an array of ids and you mark i just mark them all as red but like that isn't crud and that isn't really a restful pattern and so I struggled to implement it that way but I think this is a perfect example of not being a slave to that formal method because looking at pretty much every API endpoint they do it this way whether it be discord or Facebook like they all break this restful way to do this specific interaction because it's not helpful to follow this formal method in this instant instance it makes sense to break it and i think that's the same thing with processes whether you're doing scrum or agile it's like where's my epic where's my user store why isn't this broken down to an epic and it's like sometimes it's okay to have exceptions i do believe in process i do believe that there's advantages from it at the same time like we're all humans and we're all just trying to ship shit and there is exceptions yeah i guess you could say that you're not being a slave to crud methods <laughs> yeah totally I, it's funny because i've been using this adjective lately of like i want to build everything really cruddy <laughs> yeah and it, it wasn't until like it left my mouth that i realized like how silly that sounds like pushing everyone i work with like let's build things really really cruddy just simple and cruddy <laughs> it's like dude listen to yourself Okay, if yeah. you know if you're a developer, you know what I'm saying by that. Okay, I don't want any like custom weird specific controller actions as much as possible. <laughs> All right, so talking about not being a slave to formal methods, let's move over a little bit the conversation to the last tip here, tip 59. Costly tools don't produce better designs or better results. And I really like this quote from the book. It says, "Quote: Try not to think about how much a tool costs when you look at its output." Unquote. So. Ultimately, you know, whether it's vendor tools or whether it's an open source tool or whether it's a language, like it doesn't necessarily produce better results. And I think that there's probably a lot of people out there who could build a better application using plain JavaScript than I could in React and leveraging <laughs> all the value of that library. And so it's not about your tool, it's about the output, whether that's, you know, what laptop you're working on or what frameworks you're choosing, just, you know, don't believe the hype and don't be too dazzled by the different tools, whether they are financially expensive, so whether that's Circle CI or whatever tool that looks like. But like, you're not going to produce a better product if you have a 4K monitor or not. Like, I'm sorry, you're just not. And it's really easy to be frustrated or caught up in that hype to be like, oh, I can only afford a Linux machine and I'm running an old Linux machine. So, you know, I can't ship great code. It's like, no, 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 no. Don't be fooled. The better tool doesn't produce better output. And I feel like I've seen this again and again in my life, especially like in creative fields. I used to be really into music and photography and you'd see these bands up there with five, $6,000 worth of gear. And it's like, you guys are 19 and you've got like, <laughs> 
you know, $20,000 worth of equipment and that your daddy bought you and you just suck at guitar. And then the next act comes up and they've got garage sale instruments and they're just awesome. And they produce such good music with it. So I think it's all about the output and don't just, don't be frustrated or overwhelmed by whatever tools you're choosing, you know, whether it's vendor or open source or whatever that looks like. Yeah, it's crazy because I think this tip is even more relevant today. It says like, beware of vendor hype. There's just like so many vendors out there. And this one, this tip is like actually a little hard for me because like I've just like grown up with this mentality that like you get what you pay for. So naturally, if something like costs a little bit more money, I have this like reflex that's like, that's going to be worth more. But then you have things like Photoshop versus Sketch and like the whole Adobe suite costs you know, thousands of dollars and you have to be in like on a monthly subscription. You just buy sketch once for 80 bucks and just own it for like the rest of your life. <laughs> you don't have to like <laughs> spend all this money. But you know, th not that there's like vendor hype around like Photoshop and stuff, but there's like all these tools out there that like cost money, you know, like you said, yeah. continuous integration tools. And then you have things like project management tools. I think there's like so many project management tools out there. Like not that Asana <laughs> is like bad or anything like that, but like Asana can get expensive for like big teams, you know? Um, yeah, for sure. But yeah, it's crazy like how relevant this tip is in today's like tech world because there's just so many different things out there that cost money that that like used to just not even exist. Now we have like services for everything. And now you have also like free yeah. options for every one of those services that actually does cost money. So yeah, I just think like don't believe in the hype, but that's not to say that, you know, good things don't cost money sometimes. It's like sometimes they do cost money. Yeah. But I think, you know, like the old saying, the best camera is the one with you. Yeah. I think it's the best tool is the one you know, and the, the best tool is the one that gives you great results. And so, you know, if you're still, you know, writing Angular and you're shipping good stuff, like that's great. Keep shipping Angular. You work in Java and you're, you know, frustrated because you don't work in Java in something more modern. It's like, if you're shipping great work, continue investing in that tool that you know and love and don't like beware of the hype because next week there'll be another JavaScript framework that everybody's all excited about and shaming you that you're not using it. <laughs> so it's just one of those things. Like I think we all as an industry too should grow up a little bit and quit judging each other so much. But I think also like not being so dedicated to our own tools that we're judging others based on the tools they're choosing. Like we all have different fingers and eyes and write and read code and have different needs than everyone else. So I feel like there's a little bit of this like classist system in what frameworks or languages you're using. And it's sad. I, I, I don't want to see that. I want to see us all just like ship and all try to make the world better through what we're building. Totally. Yeah, I think as I mature as a developer, the more I just see most things is just like tools, like even languages. To me, like Ruby, JavaScript, I want to pick up Swift at some point if I can ever find the bandwidth too. Like these are, <laughs> these are like just tools. Um, it's just like something that helps you get your work done. Like I used to be like, oh, Sublime, oh, Vim, like Adam. Now it's just like, I'll just use whatever text editor is in front of me. Like I don't really care that much about what tool I'm using. They're like, they're just tools. As long as I can like, you know, your tools don't make you a better programmer. Like, yeah, I think that's the takeaway yeah. from, from that tip for sure. So to wrap up this chapter, I'm going to blow through the tips real quick. 56, start when you're ready. 57, some things are better done than described. 58, don't be a slave to formal methods. 59, costly tools don't produce better designs. 
So that wraps up chapter seven. We have two weeks left of this podcast. So that gives us only two weeks to select our next book. So please head over to, I believe it's, yeah, it is survey.iterationpodcast.com or you can just visit iterationpodcast.com and click on the link at the top that'll take you to the survey. Or you can just tweet at us. You can find all our Twitter handles on iterationpodcast.com. Cool, let's jump into picks. But first, I just wanted to say this podcast is sponsored by Brussels sprouts. No, nobody actually, but eat Brussels sprouts. We don't have any po- uh, sponsors as of yet, but if you are interested in sponsoring the show, go ahead and reach out to us the same way. You can find our contact information there uh, if you're interested in sponsoring the show. So it's just going to say that before jumping into pick. Just because like editing and hosting and microphones, it costs money and time. Um, and it would be good to recoup some of those costs, even though we do this out of the love of our hearts and the love of all of you guys out there. Yes, 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 totally. That being said, we'll jump into picks. You go first this time. <laughs> this looks cool. Whatever. Awesome. This link you have. Yeah. So uh, I actually am picking the weirdest little clock thing. It's a timer and it's called the time timer. And basically it is an hour timer. It's like a physical little alarm clock looking thing that sits on my desk. And you just literally twist to the time that you want. And there's just this red circle that just counts down. So like, I really love working kind of more Pomodoro sprints. So I kind of give myself 30 minutes or 50 minutes to work on something. And I feel like a lot of the like software things, it's like another thing on my screen and it's easy to ignore it when it goes off. And so I've really gotten so much value from literally just having a timer on my desk. But at the same time, I was using like a kitchen egg timer and then I had no like visual cue of the countdown and then it would just like, and it was like, (laughs) oh, it was just like too noisy and too much. So this little super cool little visual tool is like so nice to just have that physical reminder of focus. And as well, like I work from home. So if my wife sees this thing and it's red and I have headphones on, it's like I am deep in something and she knows like when she next can bug me. It's like, well, when this next little sprint is over and I've just gotten a ton of value out of it. It's like 20 bucks on it. Amazon. And there's a ton of these, these like visual timers. It's just kind of a fun physical representation of focus. That's really helped me focus more. And it's been uh, good for me. So dang, that's so cool. I hate that I see this because now I like want to buy one. <laughs> it's like so and it's cool. Like, it's totally gimmicky and, and lame, but it's, it's been good for me. And uh, it's, I don't know, I've gotten a lot of value at it. It sits on my desk. It's like the only physical object on my desk besides a lamp. Yeah, cool. They even have like their own watches and stuff. Timetimer.com. Really cool. <laughs> they have like really funny, ugly watches. It's such a weird company. I guess they started because uh, I guess her son or someone was, I, I believe her son was autistic and they would struggle so much to like sit down and do homework together. And so interesting, like having the visual representation really helped her son who is autistic, like see the time counting down, which totally makes sense. And I think that kind of helps me too. And it's just kind of in the corner of my eye, that red circle counting down. It's like, okay, all right. Can you set, um, okay. So like the, phys- the physical product, you can only do it for like an hour or you can even set it for like 20 minutes if you want. But the most you can set for is like an hour. Uh, the most you can, if you twist the red circle all the way around, it's an hour that counts down. So you can buy different time timers, I guess, but in, in my mind, like the longest I want to do a Pomodoro strip for, the m- max is an hour. Like I can't, I can't do more than that of like this deep focus. Because the idea is my phone goes on mute. Like there's nothing else except that specific product project in front of me. Like I close everything else and I'm just focused on that for that set of time. Like that's the idea behind Pomodoro. So you don't really want it more than an hour or so. Dang, I'm such a sucker. I'm going to close out of this before <laughs> I like do something I 
Not that I would regret it, but it's just... There's cheaper <laughs> ones too. If you just look on Amazon of like visual, I think I searched uh, visual kitchen timer. There's like a ton of these like red dial kitchen timers, but I just ended up buying this one because it wasn't that much. Yeah, I mean, like as of recently, maybe last week, I downloaded this Chrome extension where I can set, just because like I want to be able to time box things easier, not set like an alarm clock on my phone so i have yeah, this thing yeah. like an extension that's like it will like ding every like 15 minutes or 30 minutes or 60 minutes but anyways yeah i'm all about like these little productivity hacks <laughs> yeah for sure what's your pick this week man okay so my pick this week is not something physical or not like a product or a piece of technology it's actually a quote from steve jobs and because i'm like such an apple fanboy when i like stumbled across this on like some udemy course that i was taking i was like wow this is really really cool the premise of this, like this quote, or just to give you some context behind this quote, was that Steve Jobs was, in 1994, he was being interviewed by Rolling Stone. And for whatever reason, the interviewer, Jeff Goodwell, asked Steve Jobs, like, can you explain in simple terms what object-oriented software is? And you have to, like, understand that Steve Jobs isn't, like, a software engineer. But no, in any he's case, not a coder really at all, which yeah. is so interesting. He's a visionary. He's a genius, but he's not a software engineer. However, yeah. he gave like such an elegant response. And I'm just going to dump it word word vomit all over you guys right now, because I think it's like worth a listen. And I thought it was really cool. You have to like embrace your inner Steve Jobs when you read this. Though. <laughs> Imagine me holding an iPod next to my face. It's going to yeah, get your turtleneck on. <laughs> I do have one. But um, OK, so. <laughs> Here's what Steve Jobs had to say about what exactly object-oriented software is. And mind you, I don't think in 1994 that object-oriented software is like a huge thing. I think it was just like a question that was asked for whatever reason. I don't know. In any well, case. I'm trying to think. So 94, I think the context is this is when Next was being developed. And I think Next was object-oriented versus OS 9. So I think that's probably mm. the context, but I don't really know. So Jeff Goodall asks... Would you explain in simple terms exactly what object-oriented software is? Yeah, okay. And then Steve Jobs said, objects are like people. They're living, breathing things that have knowledge inside them about how to do things and have memory inside them so that they can remember things. And rather than interacting with them at a very low level, you interact with them at a very high level of abstraction, like we're doing here, like the conversation between the two. So here's an example. If I'm your laundry object, you give me your dirty clothes, and send me a message that says, could you get my clothes laundered, please? I happen to know where the best laundry place is in San Francisco, and I speak in English, and I have dollars in my pockets. So I go, I go out, I get a taxi cab, and tell the driver, take me to this place in San Francisco. I go get your clothes laundered, I jump back in my cab, I get there, I give your clean clothes, and I say, here are your clean clothes. Thing is, you have no idea how I did that. You have no knowledge of the laundry place. Maybe you speak French. Uh, you can't even get a taxi. You can't, you can't pay for one. You don't have any dollars in your pocket. Yet I knew how to do all of that, and you didn't have to know any of that. All that complexity is hidden inside of me, and we're able to interact at a very high level of abstraction. That's what objects are. They encapsulate complexity, and the interfaces to that complexity are high level. And I was like... Damn, Dude. that's like so, so very articulate for someone. Like, I couldn't even explain wow. object-oriented like software in like such a clear, concise way for someone else to understand. 
Wow. It's, it's awesome. And in fact, I think I'll probably steal his description because I feel like when working with clients, one of the first things I try to do is describe what an object is. Because like what I try to extract from a client is what are the main objects or models that we're going to be using in this application? Like what are the three or four key objects that we need to define here? And I love his description, man. That's super impressive, especially from a non-programmer. I know he he wrote a little bit of code in his life, so we don't need the, the tweets about it, but he was not <laughs> known as a programmer and he was not famous for being a programmer. And he famously like didn't do code reviews. He was very, very non-technical and stayed out of it. He got more technical in like material sciences and manufacturing processes than he ever did in code, which is super interesting. Super good find. That's an awesome pick this week. Yeah. What I really enjoy about it is that it like really describes the idea of hiding your interface, like hiding implementation details. Like all you need is a really good interface and then like, all yeah. of, and not worry about like how it's done. It's like, I go get your clothes laundered. You have, you have no idea how I did it. I could have paid like a mobster to do it. I could have, I could have done it myself. I could have had my grandma do it. All that matters to you is that I got the job done. Yeah. And there's so many metaphors there to extract because like you said, like you can, the laundry object can change out the exact processes and it's the same result. And it's like, wow, that's like a service object. You have like the laundry <laughs> mat service and you could switch that out for your own. It's like, there's so many little metaphors to extract from there, which is really interesting. And I feel like there is probably, it's like a YouTube video in there that could be super interesting to make just describing this concept and like breaking out even other concepts within that and software concepts, just this, just pushing this metaphor forward. Anyway, good pick. Awesome find. Thank you guys so much for listening. We will see you guys next week. All right. Peace. Peace.